Hello and welcome to Silencing Women in the Name of God. I'm Devery Alice. Today we have part two of Letha's interview. In case you haven't listened to the last one, which you should, uh, Letha is the founder of Essentially Awake. She is a speaker. Um, she has created an entire community of women around sovereignty, intuition, uh, self-compassion, self-love. It's it's phenomenal. Today, we talk more about Letha's story, uh, her origin story, if you will, and we get to know a little bit more about how she was raised with um, immigrant parents from India, raised Hindu, how she was then introduced to Christ at a Catholic school that she was working at, how she eventually converted to Mormonism and married into an abusive situation. And of course, how she got herself out of all of this and into the position that she is today. I hope you all have a notebook and a pen because I'm sure it's what you're going to need along with that popcorn. Both is probably great, uh, but for sure a notebook and a pen. Sit back and enjoy. Letha, I am so excited that you're back today. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> oh, I seriously, this story <laughs> and your other episode, um, for those of you who are just hopping in on this episode, you can listen to them in whatever order you want. I'm not going to boss you. However, <laughs> um, her first episode is all about what she does because Letha is a teacher and a speaker and an educator. Uh, she's founded Essentially Awake, which is a phenomenal platform. She works with women. She talks about racism and colonialism and uh, just so, so, so much important work. And in her first episode, we go into her work and her thoughts, and she gives you tools on how to heal. And I just really, in case you can't tell, I'm very excited about the last episode. Um, and in this episode, we're actually going to get into her story, how she grew up, um, the abuse that she suffered in several different arenas of life, as well as converting to Mormonism from uh, Hinduism, which uh, there's just a lot, but you absolutely need both episodes. So <laughs> there's the disclaimer. That's where we need to start. Um, and we're just going to dive right in. So you grew up in New York and you were a first um, daughter of immigrant parents from India. Yes, Is that that's correct? correct? I'm the second child and the oldest so, daughter. Second child, oldest daughter. So talk to us a little bit about culturally what type of environment you were raised in as a, as a female and then as being um, this child of immigrant parents. Um, my parents, you know, they came to this country they had a good life in India. They came to this country specifically to give their children a different life. And so I grew up very um, culturally immersed 
in the sense that in New York, there was a large community of people who were from Kerala, from the state in India where my family is from. I was able to kind of grow up really culturally immersed. Um, I was raised speaking the language. I was raised definitely with the culture, with the religion and the spirituality. Uh, very clearly, you know, raised Hindu. We, you know, did rituals at home, went to prayers, things like that. And as a first generation and also eldest daughter, there were some specific things that I was raised with. For example, I was definitely raised with a very strong focus on education, right? Uh, a very strong focus on being preparing to be a wife, honestly. That is very cultural, right? right? I grew up with being told like when I resisted and I didn't want to, you know, help in the kitchen. Well, what kind of wife are you going to be? Right. That kind of a thing. Um, right. I was definitely raised with this idea, like I said, this focus on education and being intelligent, but there was also definitely a lot of messaging immersed in culturally immersed around, um, you know, be smart, but don't be too smart. Don't be smarter than the boys don't show them up. Right. So right. from the very start of life, there was a lot around what it meant to be a girl and ultimately a woman in, in this right. kind of framework. And so it was a really conflicting upbringing for me because on the one hand, there was a part of me that really soaked it all up because I wanted to be approved of. I wanted to be good I wanted to be someone that my um, family thought of as a good girl. And mm -hmm. there was a big part of me that fought all of it and resisted it and was like, this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I remember being told by my aunties things around, you know, becoming a good wife. And I'd be like, well, I'm not going to get married or I'm going to marry a guy who's a chef or, you know, um, <laughs> things like that. And I, I definitely, there was, there was a, a lot of duality there, right? Because on the one hand, I knew that in order to be approved of and to be included and to be a part of this community, um, I needed to kind of toe the line and be that kind of a, a girl, you know, smart, but not too smart, domestic, but make money, right. docile, right? But it, like all of these kinds of things. Right. Um, but there's a huge part of me that fought back and resisted and, and just thought it was utter nonsense. Right. Well, you, it was interesting when we talked the first time, because you were explaining, um, that there really was an odd dichotomy in your house because specifically of the state in India from which you guys came, which you've just said the name and I am not going to say it properly. So I'm going to let you three say it again. Because uh, you say it so beautifully, and I will sound like an American, and it will be ugly. Um, but <laughs> it's—I would love if we could talk about that for a little bit because I think that a lot of people I know, especially within Mormonism, I see this a lot. This idea of like, you know, be all that you can be, be smart, explore your talents, like become a champion gymnast. However, then we're going to set it all down so you can be a wife and a mom because that's actually a better calling. Um, and yours was a little different within your household, but, but that 
that strange mix of, of ideas that don't mix were still clashing. Oh, absolutely. There. So I grew up right in my family is from Kerala. Our community is from Kerala. And Kerala is an unusual place in India. I think we Keralaites, Malayalis, we tend to pride ourselves on being unusual, being different from the rest of India, right? And so one of the things that I grew up with as a point of pride was that Kerala was 100% literate. Women were educated, right? All of the women I knew, my mom included, were very educated. Most of them were registered nurses. That's how many people in that generation came over to the United States. And so there was this dichotomy, like you said, there was this, you know, women educated, literate, right? Um, we're different from the rest of India. We don't, we don't abort girl babies. We don't um, not educate women and girls, right? We're different. But at the same time, the deep misogyny and sexism was totally present, right? So where that's where that idea comes from, like be smart, but not too smart right? Don't kind of outshine the boys and the men and don't be too assertive, too aggressive, too direct to any of those things, right? Um, And a, a huge concept that was definitely drilled into me, which I pushed back against, was this idea that I, as a girl, was responsible for boys and men and their actions and reactions, right? And that it was my Mm -hmm. duty sexually and otherwise to tiptoe around boys and men, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To tiptoe around Mm -hmm. their egos, to tiptoe around all that, right? Be smart, but not too smart. And so um, it was really interesting because while I definitely grew up with that point of pride, right? Like, oh, we're different, right? Our women are literate. Our women are educated. We're not like that. But then at the same time to experience things like, for example, I grew up and this was the cultural norm where women did not refer to their husbands by name. So I heard men referring to their wives by name, but women would refer to their husbands with an honorific like a, a, a term that means like a, a higher level of respect. Right. And so my mom didn't do that, but my, I never, I've never heard my mother call my father by his name ever in my life. Right. And so these things, yeah. again, it wasn't outright said, right. That not necessarily said, Oh, well, women don't refer to their husbands by their name because they're less than, but what other implication is there? Right, right. And that hangs me up in so many arenas, uh, religion especially, where it's like, well, we don't say that. Oh, but you do. Mm-hmm. We do. <laughs> like, sure, we, we're not using the exact words, but yes, what other what other thing can that mean? Like, there's no other interpretation that we either consciously or subconsciously mm-hmm. can pull from that. Mm-hmm. So you're growing up in this house. I remember you told me a story about um, your dad buying you a weight bench, which was a big deal. And your uncle being like, but why? Because she's a girl, right? So again, we have that dichotomy of like, what? But why would you do that for a girl? Um, You have your mom and your, all of your aunts working full time as nurses and then coming home and making all the food, doing all the housework, because that was a woman's job. Absolutely. 
You're growing up in this environment. Well, and, and, and my environment, you know, my dad, again, was unusual. He actually did do things around the house. Um, he did. My mom and my dad had more of an equitable division of labor. But I did not realize initially how unusual that was, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in our community. And it was very unusual, you know. And I, I mm-hmm. saw it everywhere. The there was not an equitable division of labor, responsibility, or power. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of, so I know one of the passions that you have when you are uh, educating people is the effects of generational trauma and colonialism. And are you okay if we talk here about some of the abuse and the substance abuse issues that were both within your community and or within your home as much or as little as you would like to share. I'm open about this because I feel really strongly about um, substance abuse as a side effect of generational trauma. You know, we talk about substance abuse Mm -hmm. and there are communities within which substance abuse is far more rampant And if you look at the statistics around communities which face substance abuse at higher rates, there is a lot of generational trauma, a lot. And so colonization caused a lot of generational trauma to my people, right, historically, and that generational trauma has been minimized. Like I remember when I was in school, um, being told that Churchill, Winston Churchill, was one of the world's greatest leaders, right? And that mm-hmm. disgusted me because I was like, how can you call somebody who talked about and treated my people as less than human? How can that same person be a great leader? You know, allowed so many people to die in the name of power, right? You can look up the history of the famines and all of this kind of stuff, right? But you see that everywhere. People being called great leaders, you know? People talk about Lincoln as a great leader. Well, look what he did to the Native people, right? Right. Uh, You know, the orders that he signed. Like, there's so much there, right? And so... um, there's the generational trauma, but then there's this minimization of it, right? That it wasn't really trauma because if it was really trauma, we wouldn't be talking, history books would not be listing these people as great leaders. Oh, but they do because the people who they tra- they traumatized and were violent towards were subhuman according to the narrative, according to the victor, according to white supremacy delusion, right? And so that is such a, such a major issue. And so bringing it back to, you know, so my older brother died of a heroin overdose a few years ago, and he led a very difficult life, right? Experienced a lot of um, substance abuse issues and, you know, experienced trauma and experienced generational trauma that had been passed through the generations, right? And so... I remember at his funeral, I looked around and I saw so many people who had traveled hundreds of miles to come and support my family, to come and support my parents. And I said in his eulogy, I said, look around this room, like 
we have each other's backs. We, 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 we show up for each other, right? We'll drive hours to be there for somebody. We'll bring the meals. We'll support the family. We'll do all of that. But in my, in, in to honor my brother, I, I said, well, let's, let's talk about what's really going on here, right? Let's be this supportive and open and there for each other when it comes to alcohol and drug use. Alcoholism is rampant among my people, rampant, but we pretend that it isn't. We pretend that it isn't. Like I grew up seeing uncles of mine drunk so frequently, so often, and it was just seen as normal, right? And not as a problem or not as an issue. I was scared as a kid wondering what was happening, but like it took time for me to realize. And that's why I think I'm just so passionate about it because I see, I've seen both. I have witnessed and experienced the impact of generational trauma of what colonization did to people. And what I mean by that is like, you have, like I mentioned Churchill, right? There are specific traumas that occurred and then there's, there's nowhere to go, right? Like, okay. So for example, Let's talk about the British. Let's talk about colonization as like the British come to India and emasculate men, right? P- treat treat workers, men as less than human. Those men cannot push back on the British. What do they do? They go home and push back on their wives and their children, right? Right. And those wives right. can't push back on their husbands so who do they push back their children right like and these traumas just get continually get passed down and substance abuse is one of the maladaptive coping mechanisms to to deal with that pain right right you actually you experienced that cycle first yes are you good if we talk about it okay so wherever you want to start um, with the abuse with your your brother, um, when you when we talked originally, and you 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 kind of <clears throat> unwound the abuse story a little bit backwards as you were as you were easing into it, which is so completely normal. Um, but when as you got to the end and you explained actually exactly what you just did. Um, but in a very personal way of, of that cycle and the, how it just keeps falling down and falling down, it was, it was just profound, um, heart wrenchingly profound, but so, so important. You know, it just, the, the story I'm about to share, like I, I am so grateful to have this understanding of how generational trauma works. Um, because it does inform so much of what I, I do, but also because I truly believe that unwinding, unpacking this generational trauma and healing is such a key to the work I do, which is decolonization. You know, colonization is trauma. Decolonization is healing that trauma, you know, in a nutshell. Yeah. And so, you know, for my, in terms of my brother, so my older brother was you know, um, a main caretaker for me as a child, you know, my parents worked, uh, double shifts and, you know, pursuing the great American dream, trying their hardest to provide for their kids. And my older brother, um, cared for me. 
and he was abusive to me physically and psychologically abusive to me and I grew up with that conflict right of like I love my older brother and he's my hero and I look up to him and also I'm terrified of him and I'm frightened of him and I'm hyper vigilant and I'm constantly I didn't know this at the time but I'm constantly in trauma response because of the experiences that I had with him and so our story is actually pretty amazing. I feel really grateful because I know that not everybody gets to experience what I'm about to describe. Um, but I had a very, uh, I think almost, I don't know even know the word I want to use if I want to say unusual, but I think it was a cathartic experience, which was that when I was in junior high school, a social studies teachers of mine who I did not like <laughs> at the time, but now looking back, I realized that this social studies teacher really did a wonderful kindness for me. But this social studies teacher noticed that every time somebody raised their hand near me, I would flinch. And that was from the abuse, you know, and it was a, a response that I think many children or even adults will have after experiencing abuse is that they'll physically, you know, flinch when they feel like they're might get hurt, might get hit. Right. And so he noticed this and he sent me to the school psychologist and I went to see a counselor. It was the first, my first experience with therapy and I'm not the biggest fan of Western therapy. Um, at least therapy that focuses just on the mind and not the body, but it was a good mm. opener for me in terms of my healing journey because, um, it was the first time, you know, I was in eighth grade and somebody had acknowledged to me hey, what happened to you was not okay, right? What you experienced was not okay. And what I cared about more than anything else was to make sure that my parents didn't know anything. And and, and the, the counselor told me, we don't have to report anything to your parents because your brother doesn't live there anymore. Um, but I was able to start unpacking those experiences, right? All because this social studies teacher noticed that I would flinch every time somebody raised their hand. And he noticed some other behaviors that were you know, problematic. And so I started unpacking it there. My brother was gone all through my high school years. And then he came back, prodigal son returns, you know, he had run away from home, gone for years. And he came back and my parents were real excited to have him home and thought we would all be thrilled. But I wasn't thrilled. I was angry because I could recognize, I think so often we experience abuse. I've experienced or talked to many clients about this and we, we can't name it because it's just normal. We don't have anything to compare it to, Right. That was just, that's just how I was raised. It was the first time that I realized that what I experienced wasn't normal, was unpacking it with that school counselor. And so I, you know, my brother came back and everybody wanted us to be just hunky-dory and I refused. I was angry. And I told my brother that I was angry. I wanted nothing to do with him and that he had ruined my life and that I like hated myself and felt worthless and all these things because of, of my experiences with him. And I was struggling with some major depression and anxiety. And it was during this time that I first had an experience that, um, you know, where I was like more connected to and opened up to the concept of Jesus Christ. Right. And, and particularly to the concept of God being a personal God, like divinity being something that um, I was familiar with the idea of divinity being within me and within the world and, and in everything and in everyone. But I wasn't familiar with the idea of being really known and seen by God 
right? And that was the 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 idea that really appealed to me. Like God knows me, God sees me, you know. And now I would describe God as the universe, right? Um, but like the, the universe witnesses me, sees me, knows me intimately, sends me exactly the experiences that I need to have, right? And that's what I I really do believe. I don't believe that anybody deserves abuse. Um, I certainly didn't. And I can also see how those experiences have made me who I am today and made me passionate about what I'm passionate about today. So I wouldn't change a thing. Mm -hmm. And so back to my experience with my brother. So my brother came back and and I, I wouldn't speak to him. I didn't want to have a connection with him. And then I actually ended up going to India by myself. And it was an extremely, it was a soul searching, enlightening trip. And when I went, you know, and I was unpacking kind of my own mental and emotional health and how poorly I was feeling, it was in India that I began to learn what my older brother's upbringing had been like, right? And I started asking my parents some questions and asking my relatives different questions. And what became clear was this exact, what you referred to, this pattern of generational trauma, right? And so this is where I learned, you know, my older brother growing up had told me that my dad was abusive to him, you know, beat him and, and all that kind of stuff. My dad never touched me physically. He never touched me physically or my little brother. And so that was really foreign to me, that idea of being beaten by your parents, right? Um, but it was in India that I realized that my grandmother, the woman who raised my father, her, his mother, she raised my uh, brother for the first six years of his life. And she was physically abusive to him. And, you know, family members shared with me what they witnessed, you know, when she raised him, what they saw, how she behaved with him. And there were so many parallels to what he did to me. Right. And I was so confused. I remember feeling so confused, like, how could this person, right, my brother, who I looked up to and admired, you know, who my friends all had crushes on him and thought he was the coolest and all this kind of stuff. Right. How could I feel this way where I love him and I look up to him and I admire him, but I'm also terrified of him and he caused me so much pain in my life. Right. And when I learned what his experiences had been like under, you know, my grandma's roof and seeing the parallels and seeing some things, even some exact things that she did to him that he then did to me, um, it was really a powerful experience for me. It was it was devastating. It, it was emotional. It was sad. It was, but it was also validating in a different way. It was, it was right. really like a, this firsthand view for me of how generational trauma works. Right. And I remember asking my father right. about his experiences growing up and he, you know, he always had good things to say about his mother. She taught me the value of hard work. You know, he'd always say that she taught me the value of hard work. And I pushed at him and I asked him, I'm like, well, what else did she, she, did she beat you? Right. And then he, and then my father, I remember said to me, he almost didn't really answer the question from what I remember. He talked instead about how she was treated by her family and how her family mm. beat her and mistreated her. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you see yeah. that the, the, it just passes through the generations. Right. And there are things that each generation can do to stop things. Right. My dad, while he, because he, he didn't see it as abnormal. 
he continued it with my older brother, but by the time I came around, he had stopped, you know? And like, there are are things that, that we are each equipped to do that allow the the next generation to do more. Right. And so for me, this path of healing generational trauma is so vital and so crucial one, because we need to do it for our children. Right. Um, But we also need to do it for our ancestors. There's a lot in, in, the world of epigenetics and generational trauma, where we talk about this idea of like, we can heal for generations forward and backwards. And I've experienced that. I experience mm-hmm. it now. I feel it strongly in, in my, in my body and my blood and my bones and my, the indigenous wisdom of my body, that this is the work that we're all here to do in a sense, right. Is to heal this generational mm-hmm. trauma so that it can stop being passed through the generations and so I feel like I, right. I, I got this experience, you know, so I had this experience in India, started to understand more of what my brother had experienced, came back home and confronted my brother. And we talked openly about it. We talked openly about my experiences and his and, and all of these things. And he promised me, you know, that he would spend the rest of his life being trying to be the brother I needed him to be. And from that moment on, he'd never, you know, he, he, again, he lived a tragic, difficult life fraught with addiction and fraught with all of the circumstances that he faced in this life, you know, but I got the chance to actually straight up confront what had happened, you know, and um, mm-hmm. it really set me on this trajectory. Now, the thing that I didn't realize was while I recognized the generational trauma, simply acknowledging that it was there was not sufficient to heal it. Right. So mm-hmm. I was still mm-hmm. very wounded yeah. and very damaged um, and from from the experiences that I had. And so while I was on a great trajectory to to start my healing and to, to continue and to recognize, you know, I I did recognize, for example, that I would never hit my kids. That was really important to me that I would never hit my kids and I never have. I, I definitely yelled at my kids, screamed at my kids, especially when they, you know, when my older kids were younger, it was a part of the generational experience that I just carried on. And, And then I realized, and that was a big part of what set me on this deeper healing journey was, I wanted to be a better mom. I loved my kids. I loved being a mom. I loved infancy and babyhood, but I really struggled um, to be emotionally even keel when it came to being a parent. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that was also because I continued the cycle by entering into a marriage that ended up being abusive as well. Right. And so here I was in this dynamic, you know, where I had as a very young child experienced this power dynamic, right, where I felt powerless and I felt worthless. Those were probably the two biggest sort of takeaways from the feeling of um, being abused. Right. And then I entered into a marriage with a man who whose behaviors brought me right back to that place of feeling powerless and worthless. But not only that, I also 
joined a church that gave me <laughs> claims that gave me that, excuse me, that claimed that they could give me my power and my worth back. Mm. That's what mm-hmm. I thought I was doing. And this is why too, in so much of my work, trauma victims are so drawn oftentimes to rigid dogmas, to, to rigid checklists, right? Because, you know, I could see it in my own life. I wanted safety. That's what I wanted. That's what I craved. And I had almost never experienced. I didn't know what it felt like. And the Mormon church offered me like, hey, do X, Y, and Z. And your husband will be a good priesthood holder and he'll take care of you and your family and he'll step up and you'll get to heaven and you'll be safe. And if you don't, if you follow the word of wisdom and you do these things, you will be okay. You'll be safe. You'll have worth. You'll be worthy. Right. Um, Right. You'll. and, And so I, like looking back, right. It's, it's people who know me are kind of like, it's kind of surprising and kind of shocking. Like even when I did join the church, my friends and family were like, what are you doing? That's weird shit. Right. And it it is understandable for the kind of person I was and, and who I am. Like it seemed very strange, but it was so appealing to me because if I joined this church and I married this man, I could have worth, I could have value, right? right? And that's not at all what ended up happening, but that's what drew me to it. That's what felt so attractive to me was like, you mean if I do all these things, I'll be okay. I'll be saved and I'll be safe. I'll be worthy Mm -hmm. and I won't be worthless. Right. Right. Which is why the work that you're doing is so important because if we can heal ourselves, we will stop looking to external sources to heal us, at which point we become much less susceptible to being abused and compromised and insert any um, adjective you would like there. So I love that you're breaking down the whys of like, this is what actually drove me. Cause I think that drives a lot of people and the Mormon church, not just the Mormon church, most churches who proselytize, we are taught as a former missionary myself, we are, we are taught to go after people whose lives are not fantastic because why they say, cause they're, you know, they're more, they're more open to the gospel. No, they're more open to manipulation yeah. mm-hmm. is what they are because there's just so much there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, I'm going to reel us back a little bit and we're going to start pulling some pieces together. So um, on the religious arc, you started with Hinduism, you rejected that. I would love you to talk about like what it is that caused you to reject that. Um, We moved to Catholicism just briefly where you had some beautiful realizations and then on to Mormonism. So if you could just kind of connect that uh, thread for us and then we'll move forward. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up Hindu and the idea of of God, of the universe as this divine force, right, that resonated with me, still does. Um, but my biggest beef with Hinduism 
specifically was around reincarnation and the way that reincarnation was used to uh, fortify the caste system and justify the caste system. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being young and first hearing this idea around uh, caste and this concept, which I had heard relatives speak, uh, that when somebody is born into a bad situation, so to speak, um, or, you know, in a lower caste or, you know, experiencing suffering in this life because of the family they came into or whatever, this idea of, well, they did something in their past life to deserve that was, was very prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I rejected that idea. And so I remember learning and studying and trying to understand and being told and then witnessing that, that, that reincarnation, um, or excuse me, the caste system and reincarnation, like that connection being used to justify mistreating people. And so for me, from, from a very young age, I cared about, and and again, probably because my experiences, I cared about the underdog. I cared about the powerless. I cared about the people who were mistreated by society. And so whenever anything about Mm -hmm. caste came up, that was really, um, important to me, right? That people who are mistreated for being lower caste, that, 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 that that's not okay. And I also grew up in a community right. that is technically considered, right, to be a lower caste community. Um, you know, the, the Kerala government classifies as, as like a otherwise backward caste or something, which basically kind of like affirmative action in the sense that like a certain number of, um, positions in government need to be held by this caste, like that kind of stuff, you know, and, but, but again, this goes back to the substance abuse thing too. I grew up being told that like all of that's over. Like we, we, we don't have those issues anymore, but that's not true. The caste system is very much alive and well. And people are still discriminated against very much because of caste, because of colorism, because of all kinds of things or whatever. And so, um, yeah, so that was my biggest thing, right? No way reincarnation cannot be a thing because that cannot be how God works. That cannot be how the world works. That cannot be how the universe works. Right. Mm -hmm. And so while I was still very much open to like spirit and spirituality, I just, I rejected all of that. And so when I went to college, I went to a Catholic university and that's where I first had this experience of God being a personal God. Right. And I love the idea of service and I love the idea of, um, you know, going out and doing something about the injustices in the world. Right. And so I went to South Dakota and I taught high school on the res for three years. And that was really appealing to me because Again, the injustices of the world, why people were on reservations to begin with, because the U.S. government's actions are so disgusting and reprehensible, right? And so that really appealed mm-hmm, to me. Mm-hmm. And when I was out on the res, that's when I you know, was teaching at a Catholic high school and started having experiences, more experiences with Catholicism. And again, there were, I thought Christ was cool. I loved the idea of this radical dude hanging out with people who were considered the dregs of society, right? He, to me, he was this person who cared about the underdog, right? And that was, that was really appealing to me. 
But when I was in South Dakota, my unhealed traumas were still there, still, you know, part of things. And so I, this is another experience that I had. I had um, many experiences with boy, with men where all of these things kind of played out, meaning my feeling like I was worthless, my feeling like I wasn't good enough, my feeling like, you know, it caused me to tolerate mistreatment, right? And so I tolerated mistreatment. And then I met the man who would become the father of my children. And he seemed too good to be true, was really, um, you know, the, the, the technical term I think is love bombed me, right? And there were some red flags that pointed to that this was not going to be a good dynamic between us, but I ignored them. And then we got married and I was a member of the church and I spent 17 years in that marriage trying to make it work. Um, and it was when the marriage was over that I really realized, oh shit, I just left an abusive marriage and I got to leave this abusive church <laughs> because I realized mm-hmm. the parallels. I realized that I was holding... I was holding on to the church to make my marriage work. And I was holding on to my marriage to make the church mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I really needed to do was to discover the truth within myself and connect to myself and what I really needed and wanted. But I had spent years and years connecting to everything else outside of me to try to make things work. So, yeah. So did you join the church because you had met your husband and he introduced you to the missionaries or did you marry him and then start getting the discussions? I, we were dating. Just yeah, we were dating and I met Mm -hmm. with the missionaries and I, and I actually told him that I would not marry him unless I quote unquote found the church to be true because I knew it was very important to him. And so, um, You know, and and it was, I remember I had so many issues. I went through several sets of missionaries. I questioned everything about the priesthood ban, about the dark skinned curse, about all of these things. Like, again, these are all things that mattered to me. I questioned Joseph Smith. I questioned all these things. But ultimately, looking back, I can see now I, I wanted to make it work. Because if I could make it work, I could check all the check boxes and I could be okay. And then I spent years and years white knuckling my way through all of this, trying to be okay, right? right? Trying to make my home into the MTC, you know, trying to... For for non-Mormons, that's the missionary training center. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Trying to, you know protect my kids in a very twisted way. I was trying to keep my children safe from all of the things that had hurt me by living in a very rigid way. And really so much of it now looking back, I can see, and again, I don't regret any of it. I don't regret the marriage. I don't regret joining the church. I don't regret any of it because I needed these experiences to, to really immerse myself in and learn what I needed to learn because now I can help people and I do help people 
who are so far into the situation, you know, um, in a way that I never could yeah. have if I hadn't experienced what I had experienced. And really, it also comes down to this, like, I am a dope ass person. I love who I am. You know, I love you are. I, 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 I am. I, I love who I am. I love how I show up. I love, you know, so, so much about myself. So how could I regret these things? Right? Because the person I married, he helped me become who I am today. You know, the right. church I joined that I've now left. Right. But it helped me become who I am today. Like I had these immersive, painful, difficult, heart wrenching, and even abusive experiences, but I don't regret any of them because they helped me become this dope ass person who can help people who are where I was. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's powerful. And I think it's, confusing until you experience it like you're like why like hmm how do I want to how do I want to say this I think a lot of people me included have had moments where it's like you don't want to look at the good and you don't want to forgive's not the appropriate word here you don't want to understand right everyone else's perspective because it feels like what you're doing is saying like, oh, the the abuse and the trauma didn't matter right and and it was okay and that's not at all what it is that's not what you're saying I remember when I was, I think I was probably 20 and I was in college and, uh, I had a lot of shit going on, not your kind of shit, different kind of shit. And all of my roommates were still in that like charmed life that a lot of people live up until like 25, 26. And, uh, I was so upset. And I remember I was in my room and I was just bawling and very Mormon. And so I was, you know, talking to God and it was like, why, like, why, why is this? happening and why do I have so much like this is ridiculous and it was a very spiritual experience because all of a sudden I could see the outcomes of everything that I had lived through so far and what I identified pretty quickly was every single personality trait about myself that I actually liked that I actually was like I'm proud of this part Mm -hmm. of me was directly correlated to these quote-unquote horrible experiences And because I was only 20 and less mature than I am now, I was like, all right, listen, God, like I get it. I'm not ready to say thank you yet, but I get it. (laughs) Like I can see that. And I love like that you are working with this and teaching women this by speaking so freely about it of like, look, I've been through hell and back in a lot of ways. And I feel like we've barely even scratched the surface of your hell and back, but, um, to be so reconciled to it in the most healthy, beautiful of ways, you know, like it wasn't okay. I shouldn't have had to go through that. I didn't need to like, not need to, but it wasn't, I didn't deserve it. wasn't right. But also didn't deserve it. There we go. I was like, you use the perfect word and I'm not finding it. Yeah. You didn't deserve it, but it has created. Well, it is what it is, is right? Like that's the thing. I can right. fight against it. I could, and I did for a long time. I regretted these things. And, and, and there was a time too, where it was really easy for me to be like, oh my goodness, you know, their dad was so abusive. He was so awful to me. Like I'm a victim. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah, he was awful to me and I've talked to him about it and he acknowledges that he was awful to me. Right. But also like I played a role, not to say that I deserve to be mistreated. No, but 
mm-hmm. there is a reason that our wounds fit together. You know, there mm. is a reason mm. that our experiences and all of that fit together, right? And we each get to decide what we're going to do with that, you know, but mm-hmm. I just, yeah. you know, I, and, and it, the other thing I'll say this too is it's taken me time to get here. I wasn't reconciled to this in the beginning to any of it like I said back when my brother first came back and I was just I was angry and I think it's really important to honor our rage I think it's really important not to spiritually bypass yes and to just go straight to well acceptance and it is what it is and life is wonderful and you know like it's I think it's super important to honor that rage and here's specifically why especially in light of the work that I do there are many uh, negative impacts to bypassing our rage, including that it will poison us, right? Mm-hmm. We need to honor it. We need to respect it. We need to unpack it. But there's also this, I never want to let go of my rage. And here's why. Because initially my rage was against my abusers, right? Initially my rage was against the people who mistreated me. And I was blessed to have this like wonderful relationship with my brother. Um, despite the beginning of our relationship being so painful and rocky. Right. I was really, it was a, you know, when my brother died, I was the closest person to him, you know, at that time. And I realized that that's a, a real significant gift that to be able to go from the kind of relationship that we once had to where we were, where we could be loving and supportive to one another, despite our completely different lifestyles and all of that kind of stuff. But here's why it's so important to not let go of that rage, because it is fuel for me. Our rage can always be fuel for us. It's fuel for the work I do. So initially, I was angry with these individuals who hurt me. But now, I'm enraged at the systems that allow this to be perpetuated. I'm enraged Mm -hmm. at patriarchy. I'm enraged at anti-blackness. I'm enraged at casteism. You know, I am enraged that Indian culture, a culture that is at its roots and at its core can be so profoundly beautiful, especially around the power of the divine feminine. And I'm enraged that Mm -hmm. such a a culture Mm -hmm. that can embrace and acknowledge the power of the divine feminine can also simultaneously be a culture that seeks to silence and extinguish women. Right? Like I'm enraged at that. So while I am no longer enraged at my children's father, you know, and I wish him healing and I wish him growth and progress because again it was the experience he needed to have too for whatever reason right but I am enraged Mm -hmm. at these systems that allow women to continue entering into these completely uh, unequal partnerships right where they are expected to behave in certain ways and they're shamed when they don't you know meet these impossible criteria I'm enraged at churches and institutions that are complicit in women being subjugated and oppressed in these ways, right? So my rage is divine. My rage fuels this work that I do Mm. 
our rage is necessary to dismantle these systems without it. Where's the motivation? Cause this shit is hard to do. These things are so entrenched and ingrained in society. Look, I was raised in what appears to be a completely different way than Mormonism, right? I was raised Hindu. I was raised in a, you know, Indian household upbringing. I, I became Mormon. I lived a Mormon life for whatever number of years, right? You would think those two things are so different. They're really not. I joined right. the church because it was a system I was familiar with. It was oppressive and it was oppressive to women, but it seemed to be slightly less oppressive. So it was familiar enough. Right. And then it also, you know, appealed to me to be just a little bit out of the box because, oh, well, they refer to a heavenly mother. They don't completely erase the divine feminine. Right. And so there were just all these little things, but that that's, that's why I did it. That's what appealed to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to take a stab at what I think you just said, because it's super profound and it ties into a question I was going to ask you next. Um, When you said, so you'd been talking about um, enraged and you listed completely systems. They were all systems um, within society. And anytime you speak about people, you come from a place of understanding where they're coming from, why they're behaving the way that they're behaving, what generational trauma may be affecting them, uh, et cetera, et cetera, the whole ball of wax that creates a human being. And so I loved when you said my rage is divine, because really what I think you're saying, and I know you're going to correct me if this is not what you're saying, but what I think you're saying is it, because it is divine to have rage against systems that oppress people, because that is not divine, right? That is not of any loving God of any sort that would create these systems. Like these systems are man-made and they oppress and break down and destroy. And where you are pulling out of that rage to enter into relationships differently is on the individual human level that are being affected by these systems. And although we all have responsibility to ourselves for being affected as small little humans through no fault of our own. Yes. Would you say, did you find it? Yeah. And I think like, I think it's, I think it's so crucial to channel it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like these experiences that we have, cause, cause what, what's the alternative, right? We have rage at whatever we experienced and we heal Mm -hmm. and we forgive, we move forward. Right. But, Mm -hmm. and, and you know, we, we, we talk about forgiveness in general in society. And I think that oftentimes there's, especially within the Mormon church and in other churches, there's conflation, right? Forgiveness and trust are conflated, mm-hmm. right? Forgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. For, for, so here's the thing. I believe in forgiving individuals. I do not believe in forgiving systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And the question that I wanted to ask when you started going down that road is, yeah, how, how do you teach people to start to heal these things? And how do you get from where you were to where you are? But I think that this is a huge part of that answer is learning to separate that out and make that distinction. Would you say that played a big part? in your I, I would say it did, but I wouldn't 
I would say that the way to that where we can um, distinguish is through compassionate witnessing of ourselves. We need to really mm. see ourselves, see our experiences, see who we are and what we endured. We need to fully witness it. So like, like going back to my experience, if I had not had that experience as an adult with my brother where I was able to confront him, right? We would not have ended up having the relationship that we did. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe we would have had a surface level relationship. Maybe there would have been constant resentment from me for everything that he did. You know, we would have played the roles for the family or whatever. But I feel like at that age, you know, and, and my parents didn't really encourage or discourage me in one way or another. When I told them how I felt, they were just kind of at a loss. They were shocked. They had no idea that that was my experience because I had it from them. You know, we had it from them or whatever. Uh, They didn't know what to do. They were so excited and happy that their son was returning. And this was like through like a wrench in the works, you know. Um, But when I look back on it, it really was such a beautiful thing for me because it informs the work I do now. I was able to directly confront what I had experienced. And in my particular situation, I was able to confront it with the person who had caused the experience, right? And Mm -hmm. it led to something different in terms of our relationship. But it also led to me being passionate about the things that I'm passionate about. Right. Right. So you said something, I think this is, I mean, along the line of, of the healing and, and kind of where we're going with this. Um, after you joined Mormonism, you said, well, you told me in an interview, you said autonomy was my number one value, but I lived as if obedience was. Can we, can we just talk about that? Absolutely. And like what that, like, please just like wherever you want to start, just go all in. Cause I think this is going, I mean, I felt that one. That was how I walked through my experience with Mormonism. And I know that you and I are not alone. So please. So I talk about this often because I teach a lot about aligning our values and actions. And I think I do a lot of work with people who are experiencing faith transitions of any kind, you know, not necessarily just for Mormonism, but any kind of faith transition or transitions from, you know, childhood to adulthood, because any of us who are raised in rigid dogmas, whether those are religious or cultural or just family culture, right? We, um, when we're raised that way, we're told what our values are. We're told we as a family value this. So you value this, right? But our values are actually discovered. They're actually just inherent in us. And I realize now that I've highly valued autonomy because the biggest thing that pushed my buttons that my parents did was when I would ask them a question about what we were doing or where we were going or what whatever was happening in life. And the answer was because I said so. And that enraged mm-hmm. me because for me, I was like, no, I need to know what's happening. Like I'm my own person, right? Autonomy. Mm-hmm. And um, right. that was one of my values. But when it was presented to me that obedience would save me, Right obedience Mm -hmm. to rigid dogmas would save me because here's the thing I grew up being told that I grew up being told in a different way because it wasn't necessarily religious 
but I was told that if I was obedient to rigid dogmas, if I dressed a certain way, if I conducted myself a certain way, I would be safe. Right? Mm -hmm. But I wasn't. So those rigid dogmas didn't work. So then when I was presented these sort of uh, religious dogmas that were very clearly spelled out, right? Doctrinal, scriptural, right? right? Right. Um, If I do these things, if I check these boxes, then I'll be safe. Well, that was was more appealing, right? And there was more quote unquote evidence. There were people around me that were like, I pay my tithing and we always have money for rent, right? I, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I follow the word of yeah. wisdom and I've never gone down this path. I've, you know, like that was really appealing to me. Yeah. It sounded really safe. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and I think when we talked in our first interview, I remember asking you like, so the word of wisdom was probably super appealing to you because you grew up with alcoholism. Mm-hmm around you everywhere and the Mormon church promised that that would not be a thing and that your husband would not drink which ended up being yeah, true didn't drink. in the end the However, person that didn't stop the abuse and the man who I uh was seeing prior to uh meeting the the, the man I ended up marrying drank and mistreated me when he drank right and so it was like a kind of a perfect setup for me to be like oh my goodness, this is so good, right? He won't drink and he won't beat me. And he didn't. He never drank and he didn't beat me. But that wasn't enough. (laughs) And that didn't. Well, because I mean, yeah, that's not the only way you can No, it definitely isn't. But again, that was what appealed to me. That's what I grew up with, those ideas, right? And so it also took me a really, really, really long time to figure out that what I was experiencing was what it was. Yeah. Yes. I, so you said something else, um, which I really loved. You said I was the perfect Mormon, but I was violating my own boundaries to do so. And I love that tying that into what you just said of it took me so long to figure it out and tying this back. I'm just going to tie in everything you've said for the whole thing, tying it into how it manifests in our bodies. Because for me, hundred percent, like I just, I had to constantly violate my own boundaries in order to be Mormon, but that's all I knew because I was never not Mormon. (laughs) And so I like the resentment was building up and building up to the point that like, my body was shutting down and like I was starting to have panic attacks and anxiety attacks. Church was hell. Like I felt like my skin was on fire. My heart was beating on my chest. And for me, I don't know what you did. For me, it was, I'm wrong. I'm bad. If I just try harder, I'm going to figure this shit out because I need to just violate my boundaries more in order to be okay. So I did that first with the church. I did the mental gymnastics all the time. I was sick to my stomach about so many things. The priesthood, like from, from the very get-go, I was sick to my stomach about the priesthood ban. I was sick to my but I engaged in mental gymnastics to make it work. I was sick to my stomach about Prop 8. I was sick to my stomach about so many different things, but I engaged in mental gymnastics. I, I spent a lot of energy trying to make it work, right? Mm-hmm. And I did that in the marriage. I did that in, not just in the marriage. I did that in a lot of relationships, 
and not not I'm not just talking about romantic relationships I'm talking about friend and family relationships too I compromised myself over and over and over again like I said I lived other values not my actual values and now that I'm in this space in my life where I live my values every damn day and I feel so anchored and at peace because of it I mean, I was literally betraying myself on a daily basis in order. And again, not to shame myself, I was betraying myself because I was trying to hold on to this semblance of peace and love and safety and worth, right, that I thought I would get if I lived this particular way. Right, right. How... What's a good way, because I know this is what you do, what is a good way for women who have been betraying themselves for so long, they don't even know what it looks like anymore? How do you know, like, what your values are, what you, like, how do you go from betraying yourself so much you can't find yourself to to unearthing you? Yeah, that's actually a really excellent question. I talk about this a lot in my courses and in my individual work with and group work with, um, with people. So the antidote to self-betrayal, right, is to develop self-trust. And so think about a relationship that you have with another person where you betray them. You consistently put them in harm's way. You consistently don't look out for their best interests. And over time, that person stops trusting you. The relationship has a major rift in it. There's no trust there. How is that trust rebuilt? Well, it's rebuilt through small and consistent actions. The only way to repair betrayal in relationship, right, is over time consistently proving that you've changed, that you are different and you won't engage in those behaviors anymore, right? And you might make mistakes here and there. Of course, that's normal. But is there this overall trend towards shifting and changing and behaving differently, right? Behaving in a way that actually engenders mm-hmm. trust. So that same thing applies to us. The antidote is to slowly, consistently engage in actions, tiny actions at first, that show us that we have our own backs, that we can trust ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I talk a lot about this in my work. And and so much of what I talk about in my work, I feel like, you know, we live in a society where we have this like instant gratification thing and these like, we need results, we need results, right? And so we want quick results. We want to do the dramatic thing. We want to go from sedentary lifestyle to I exercise for an hour a day at the gym, six days a week, right? Mm-hmm. But there is a reason why um, the gym is full on January 1st and empty on February 1st because we're not equipped, right? Our nervous systems, our bodies are not equipped to make those kinds of shocking transitions and keep them anchored. The best way to engender real change is through small, simple, consistent action. Right. And Mm -hmm. so the key to healing self-betrayal 
is to prove to ourselves we can trust ourselves by having our own back in small and simple ways consistently over and over and over again. And so this applies to things like self-care, like setting boundaries, you know, taking care of ourselves. I mean, it, it, it applies in every area of life. So I guide people in connecting with their own intuition and figuring out where they need to start with that process mm. and how to continue it. Yeah. I love that. I know one of the things that I have to do, cause I don't even know. It's just, you know, what? it's just who I am and it's okay. I have always struggled. Like I've, I loved moving up until like the last few years because I would change, but people, all the people around you want to keep acting like you're the same person mm-hmm. that you were mm-hmm. two years ago. And I don't love kicking against that. I don't like the battle to try to just be me. So I loved moving because you would just walk in as this like that year's version of yourself and everyone around you is like, okay, cool. Like, that's fine. That's who you are. Um, So when I started honoring myself, like I had to just talk to people very bluntly and be like, hi, so um, I am not going to be doing things the way that I used to do them anymore because I had such anxiety about it. And so just setting down, like, I understand that this is how it always used to be. Um, for me, I'm not doing that anymore. And I uh, just wanted to give you a heads yeah. up. <laughs> Moving forward, that like, this is going to be shifting. And it helped me so much just get over that hump of like honoring myself, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So anyone, if that helps anyone, I hope it does. Um, okay. I wanted to go ah to your healing journey. So you filed for divorce from your abusive husband, realized like, oh my God, I'm also in an abusive church. And uh, 2011 to 2012, you really dropped into your healing journey. Talk to us about where you were at at the time and some of the things that you were. Well, I actually, I started my healing journey while still in the marriage. And so we were still married for, for a few years and it was during, throughout the healing journey that I as I was, you know, learning to trust myself, right, um, that it got to the point where I could not, I was so connected to myself that I could no longer engage in the mental gymnastics, right? So mm-hmm. at the beginning of my healing journey, I was still, I was still doing that. I was still justifying. I was still making excuses for the people in my life, for the institutions in my life. I was making excuses mm-hmm. for the ways in which they did not align with me. And then as I was just really caring for myself, taking care of myself, again, strengthening that relationship with me, um, my intuition became clearer and stronger. And it became really apparent that this marriage was not for me and this church was not for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And the only way that I could get to that for me was to get to a place where I trusted myself. Right. Right. I love the connection you just made about like the more that you stopped the mental gymnastics, stopped dishonoring yourself, the louder your intuition Mm -hmm. became. That is profound. And that's huge. And I hear that question a lot of like, how the hell am I supposed to start listening to my intuition? Like, I don't even know what the fuck that means. (laughs) So I love that that was a natural process that happened. And then as you listen to your intuition more, then the proof came in of the accuracy of your intuition, at which point you then began to learn how to trust Mm -hmm. yourself in a more complete way. That's perfect. It's beautiful. 
Sorry, you can keep going. I just wanted to like shine a light on that for everyone who they maybe didn't catch the connective thread. No, there. I love that. And I love, I love it because it informs my work because my work is about connecting people to themselves. My work is never about telling people what to do and how to do it. Mm-hmm. My work is to yeah. present um, information and options and insight to share my indigenous embodied somatic wisdom with people who are ready to hear Mm -hmm. it and who can connect to their own intuition to determine what they need to Mm -hmm. hear, witness, shift, change, etc. Yeah. Which is one of the things I like so much about you and your work. Um, And I see it's funny because you've done this several times when I've asked a question during this interview it's not that you are vague necessarily, but you're very light on steps on like, here's A, B, C, D, E, F, which is perfect because it does need to be so individual and it does need to be, no, let me just guide you to find your intuition. Like, let me guide you to find you. And I think that's where, you know, quote unquote, self-help is going and needs to be going because it should actually be self-help and not let me stand on this platform and tell you exactly how to well, get there. And, you know, the whole idea of a guru, you know, like I grew up with the idea of gurus, right? And people have mm-hmm. kind of taken that idea and, you know, ran with it. But I also know from personal experience that um, seeing somebody as a guru is really problematic because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so here's an example. I grew up being taught that Gandhi was this incredible human being um, who liberated India. And then as I got older and I started studying him, I realized, well, one, he was anti-Black, like extremely anti-Black. Mm. He's racist as hell. Wow. He also had a lot of other... I had not studied yeah, Gandhi, so I did not He know also this. had yeah, a lot of other problematic... Uh, behaviors right and so so seeing him not that I saw him as my guru or anything but there were people who did but that's problematic right because if you see somebody else as this expert and this person that you need to follow like you're not trusting your own intuition we're all here to be connected to self and what is right for me isn't necessarily right for you you know Um, But again, rigidity and dogma, like if somebody tells you that there is something right for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Well, first Mm -hmm. of all, red flag, (laughs) Um, because life is far more nuanced (laughs) and complex and beautiful than that, right? God and the universe are bigger than that. There cannot possibly be one path for all the billions of people who have walked this planet. That makes no sense Mm -hmm. right um but it's problematic in that sense like okay so if somebody is a guru and i'm gonna follow them and i'm gonna obey and i'm gonna do what they say then i also i don't have to have any accountability when it doesn't work because it was on them right right? so again it goes back to that piece around love is accountability right connecting with ourselves is about accountability so it can be really appealing especially when you've experienced trauma to 
outsource your sovereignty and outsource your power. Because here's the thing, when you experience trauma, that's part of the experience is the powerlessness of it, that somebody else did this to you. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. So you already have this evidence, so to speak, that you don't have power. You couldn't stop it. When Mm -hmm. you were a kid, Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I couldn't stop those experiences. I was already powerless. Mm -hmm. Right? So then continuing to outsource my power to an institution that tells me who I am and what I need to do and what I deserve, it, it, it feels comfortable. Right. And comfort is not always a great thing. No. You said something, I don't remember whether it was last time, other interview, I don't know, maybe this interview, um, but you said something about, oh no, you did reference it this time, just because I knew the trauma was there does not mean or did not mean that I had healed it, even though at that time you thought that you had healed it. Um, And I think that ties into what you were just saying about accountability. And so like before I want to go into your healing journey, because you really dealt with some, some things that a lot of us need to hear. But before we do that, can you break down for us the difference um, and why the difference matters of like seeing the trauma, right. Versus like, where do we, how do we actually take accountability and deal with that in, in a, like, mm, where's the starting line for that? How's that? Because I know you aren't going to want to give steps because we just talked about that. So where's the starting line? So the starting line <laughs> is deeply witnessing. That's the starting line. And so I was aware of my experiences. I knew that they impacted me. But I didn't deeply witness myself. And I didn't allow space for the emotions. So... I, at that time, when I first started unpacking it with my brother, there was a very logical aspect to it, right? The generational trauma thing, the logical part of it made sense to me. Oh, okay. He experienced this. And before, you know, my grandmother experienced this and my father experienced this and it was just passed on. And, you know, like the logic of it, like there was nowhere for it to go. So it just went to the next person, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so logically I was like, oh, okay, now I know. And I'm going to stop it because now I know. So I won't beat my kids. Right. And I didn't. But Mm -hmm. that wasn't enough because our unhealed shit will always leak out sideways. Always. And so a big part of it and a big part of me revisiting all of those experiences. And I still like I've had experiences recently. Right. Where I've had to unpack some things from from my very, very early days, you know, and I'm well into my healing journey. But the thing, the starting line, so to speak, that you refer to is I couldn't just see it on a logical level. Like, oh, I experienced these things and I experienced them because these people experienced these things and it was passed on. I needed to feel the feelings that I had been shoving down all that time. I needed to feel the feelings of worthlessness and humiliation and all of those things so I could let them go. I wasn't feeling them. I was just shoving them down under this like logical heading, (laughs) this umbrella, right? Right. Of like, these are all the experiences that made me feel this way. And now I know that they did that. And so now I'm good. No, my body was holding on to them, you know, because I had never really honored them, never felt them. It's like what I was referring to earlier about the rage. We've got our, our, we are not our feelings. 
And yet we're, we're a conduit for our feelings. And part of being a, an effective conduit for emotion is to honor the emotion. Mm. Mm. Yes, that was perfect. I loved that. And we talked a little bit about that in the first interview too, um, about the importance of letting those emotions come. And it is amazing to me how terrified we as human beings are of our own emotions because they feel like, like the hard ones feel like destruction. They feel like we are going to die if we process that. And you have to process it a couple of times before you're like, well, I lived like, look, like it's going to be fine. And then you get the courage to go in deeper and, and get more and more of that. So mm, thank you. I love that. You said um, in our pre-interview, and I think a lot of people will feel this. You said, it's a human need to be seen and witnessed. My parents tried really hard, but were limited by their own trauma. I just wanted to be seen and to be loved. And because you hadn't healed that, that played out in your conversion to Mormonism is what I think I've heard you saying throughout this interview. Would you mm-hmm. say that was accurate? Yeah. And I love I, I do want to say this. That you both I do want to say this too. Yes, please. You know, I have five children with a wide age range and I can even see in myself my, and this is why our own healing is the most important gift we can give to our children. My capacity to witness my kids has evolved and expanded as I've continued to heal. Right. I, I could witness and see my, my older kids to a certain degree. Right. But my capacity to witness and see my, my children has, expanded so much because the way we are in one area is the way we are in all areas. How could I deeply witness my own children in their pain and suffering when I was refusing to witness my own? Yes. Mm. I really can. I just would love you to repeat that one more time. If you can. How could I what? She likes when I do this, by the way. (laughs) How could I witness my own children in their feelings and their deep pain and suffering when I was refusing to do it for myself. I mean, you see this all the time. It's why, you know, we as humans, we in society, we can be so uncomfortable with another person's intense emotions. And if we are, if we're a person who is uncomfortable with other people's intense emotions, the first question to ask is, well, how are we with our own? What were we taught about our own intense emotions? Yeah. Yes. I've said this before on probably more than one um, of these podcasts, but for all of the women who are doing work out there and who are on this path with you and who are going to come to you and continue to do this path, I've talked to a few um, who have been so fearful of this because they're like, how do I go through this in front of my children? How do I let my kids see me fall apart basically, you know, and, and, I have said, and this is from my personal experience, I'm like, you, that is the greatest fucking gift you could ever give them because they will witness you doing it in real time firsthand and get like a front row seat and lesson on how to do this themselves. Absolutely. And I think too, one, it goes back to that accountability, right? Our children need to witness us falling apart and putting ourselves back together. Because they're going to fall apart. Yeah. Because we all do. 
at some point we all fall apart and imagine how much better it will be for them if it has been modeled for them how to put yourself back together how to take care of yourself deeply how to how to Mm -hmm. sit with the messy and also how to take accountability for it because here's the thing we all fall apart like i said if we don't heal it leaks out sideways but often when our stuff leaks out sideways on our kids we make our children responsible for things that are actually our responsibilities. So people say like, how do I fall apart in front of my kids? Well, if you don't fall apart in front of your kids, your kids are still sensing your pain, your suffering, your hesitance, your whatever it is. Right. And it's impacting them. Mm -hmm. And because children are wired the way that they are, they will often internalize it and take responsibility for it. Absolutely. So wit- witnessing, Absolutely. like I had an experience a few weeks ago with my youngest that was really profound. And I had had a very intense week emotionally. And I was in my room and I was crying and she wanted to come in and sit with me. And she knew that I was crying and she was perfectly happy and content. She wanted to sit by me. She put her arms around me and let me cry. And she would kind of like pat my shoulder and then jump up and play and then come back over to me and whatever. But I really, that, that experience was so profound and so touching to me because here's what it was. She loves me. I love her. She loves being around me. She offered me comfort and I received it without making her responsible for making me feel better. I could sense deeply Mm -hmm. in that moment that she understood she had no responsibility over mommy being upset. She Mm -hmm. wasn't trying to take it away. She wasn't like trying to entertain me, trying to jump up and down and tell me jokes or what, which, which a lot of us do. A lot of us become shapeshifters and people pleasers Uh because we're trying to get as kids, we were trying to get that love connection and belonging from our caregivers. Right. And so we shapeshift and we do what we think will work to get them to come back to us. Right. Right, Um, but she didn't do any of that. She just held space for me without compromising her own kind of emotional field. You know, and it was just this beautiful yeah, thing because that. that is what I'm able yeah. to do. I'm able to, in my coaching work and in my education work and even, you know, in my relationships with loved ones, I am able to hold space without internalizing their stuff. And it's because mm-hmm. I have stopped internalizing my own stuff. Or, well, more accurately, mm-hmm. I am working very actively. I'm not, I still internalize stuff. I'm not quite there, but like, that's a really big part of it. Yes. Yes. And that is, it's hard work to do because in order to stop internalizing it, you have to look at the emotions instead of burying them. And yeah, it's just, it's all a sequential, like step down, step down, step down. Um, But no, I love that. And I love that you were able to see that because of the way that she kept like moving away from you and just doing her own thing and then coming back like there. Yeah. There was no responsibility of, I have to make mom Mm -hmm. feel better. She didn't. And that is, that is beautiful. Well, and can I just, I'm just going to give you props here for a second that. So you've um, fairly glossed over the surface of the depth of the abuse um, across the board, which is again, completely fine. Um, 
but because we've talked about it, I know that it's, it's much deeper. And so for them to have come out of a household was where that was their reality. Um, not only from their father, but you have shared that you yelled at them because that generational trauma was coming down. So there was a lot of, of yelling and screaming on that end as well. And then to have done enough work and turned it around enough and been transparent enough with them that she was able to just feel that complete sense of safety and a lack of responsibility for you, I think is a huge testament to the effectiveness of the work, not only that you've done, but that you are teaching now to all of the women around you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Cause it is, it's, it can be really, um, generational healing work, trauma work, boundary work, like all of it, it involves a lot of grief, grief over what we didn't do, who we weren't, what could have been, what we thought it would look like, like all of those things. Right. Um, But there's also this really important piece around accepting what is like, you can't change it. It happened. So what are you going to do now? Yeah. Yeah. And it gives you your power back, which is exactly, I think what you were saying a few minutes ago again is like changing. I don't know if this is the right verbiage here. I'm worried I'm going to mess this up. Um, Changing the victim mentality into something else. And yeah, being able to, to feel that empowerment of knowing that you are completely capable of changing things moving Mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I would love for you to talk about, um, for as long or short as you want, how you started to come into self-love on this healing journey. Uh, cause you struggled a lot with self-esteem issues and self-hatred of not only the insides, but the external as well. Um, and then I think we're just going to wrap it up with whatever on earth you want to share with people before we say goodbye for today. So it's interesting, the self-love journey, because I, I honestly, for a lot of my life, I just assumed I like aspiring towards self-love wasn't really a thing for me. Like, I just kind of assumed I'd always have this sort of fraught relationship with myself. I'd walk by a mirror and say some pretty awful things to myself. And I just figured that's what it would be like till I died. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it didn't even kind of cross my mind to heal that. Um, I, I sort of was like besties with my harsh inner critic, like, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I, so it's kind of funny almost to hear a, like to hear from your, you know, the question you asked me, because it really makes me think of how, like, I wasn't aspiring for self-love, you know, but what happened was as a mother, I wanted so badly for my children to feel truly, deeply loved. And I love all my children and I love them from the, and I know this is not always the case um, with everybody, but for me, I fell in love with them as soon as I saw them. The love that I felt for my babies Mm -hmm was overwhelming and so powerful. But as time went on, my own lack of self-love became more and more apparent, right? And so there were things that I would never say out loud in front of my children that I would say to myself in my head. 
but I noticed over time that they were clearly energetically impacting my kids. So again, as much as we want to compartmentalize and as much as we want to say, like, I'm this way in this area and this way in another area, no, the way we are in one area is ultimately the way we are in all areas. So my capacity for love was limited because in general, because my capacity for love for myself was so limited and I wanted Mm. to be a loving person for my children. And I was to the degree that I could be, but I could feel the limits. And it was in feeling the limits of being able to love those around me and making the connection of like, well, that has to do with my love for myself. That is really what compelled me to find self-love. And I'll be honest, like the first time, I think one of the first things I did to kind of, you know, deepen my self-love was to do affirmations you know, look in the mirror and I love myself and I'd use essential oils and I'd, girl, let me tell you, the first time I did self-love affirmations, I felt nauseous and I was angry. (laughs) I was angry. I was like so mad because it felt like I was lying to myself. It felt so disingenuous. It felt so gross. And I, I don't advise clients to do things that are that big of a push. I, I advise clients to take much gentler, easier, more consistent steps, because ultimately that is what leads to long-term growth in a much easier way. And I, I mm-hmm. share that in part because I did it the other way. I tried to make myself right. love myself, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, didn't work so well. But... I don't really believe in love at first sight. I mean, other than like (laughs) the love I felt for my children, which I don't even know if that was first sight for me because, you know, they grew within my body. Right. But I don't really believe in that like rom-com fairy tale shit. I think that love is an action. And I think that it um, compounds over time. And the same exact thing is the case with self-love. So whether it's affirmations or something else, whatever tiny acts that we can engage in consistently over time where we show ourselves, I love you. I got your back. Mm -hmm. I will look out for you. I will take care of you. You know, that's really what self-love is to me. Yeah. I love this. So true. Sorry. I'm just like, my brain is exploding with the 17 different directions that I am thinking mm-hmm. about with what you said about, um, yeah, our capacity to love ourselves is the limit to which we have a capacity to love others. And I, I think that, again, this is one of those things where you don't understand it until you've experienced it. Cause you're like, what are you talking about? Like, I love, I love that person. Like I love fine. And then I love that you were able to feel the limits before. Cause I don't know that I realized um, that they were there or I hadn't defined them as such anyway. And uh, yeah, once I started doing the work, like my capacity to love others just went through the roof and it was because I was loving myself for the first time ever. And so I love, I love that you broke that down because it is this, this phenomenal reward, I guess, that sits at the end of that like self-love rainbow and it opens and you're like, Oh my God, I didn't even know. Like, this was here. I didn't know I was capable of it. It's just fucking beautiful. Okay. Last thoughts to share, whether it's another piece of your story that um, you feel is important that we didn't get to, or 
um, anything you want to talk about for people who are listening, who are going to start on the self-love journey, I would love to hear it. I think the piece that I always return to, that I always like find that I need to reconnect to, and that's the piece that over and over and over again is I think probably the most integral and profound piece around healing is compassion. You know, mm-hmm. and it can be really difficult. Like if you have never been a person who has practiced compassion towards yourself, it can feel really jarring, awkward, like all of those things. But what's so interesting to me, and this is true about me, and I think it is true about so many people that I've witnessed, is that very often the people who care most about compassion towards others exhibit the least of it towards themselves. And there's something really incredible that happens when if we value that and we start to really apply it towards ourselves, we experience this expansion, right? Um, In our capacity Mm -hmm. and our viewpoint, in our ability to love. And it's, it really is just so expansive. And so I would say that if nothing else, if you can cultivate a practice of gentleness and compassion towards yourself, that that's really the key to all of the healing, to be able to witness ourselves in a compassionate way. Um, it's, I've, I've watched it over and over again in other people and in myself, what that does. Self-compassion is the key. Hmm. Perfect. Letha, thank you so much for being here twice. It has been a joy and an honor, and I am so grateful to be able to share your words with my audience. So thank, thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider taking the time to like, rate, review, and share. Let's make sure that when someone clicks on this podcast, that our voices are the loudest. Love you all. There once was a woman who lost her way. She wandered through thickets and thorns. They told her her pain was not but the price of finding her soul again. Silent, she was silent, but she'll carry her pain no more. Silent, she was silent, but she'll carry